Well, let's turn to God again in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the reminder and the words that we've just sung that you're not just uh, great, though you are great, but you are the, the beautiful God. You are the, the wonderful God. And we come tonight to seek your face, uh, to pray that you would speak to us, uh, that you would help us. Uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, uh, we've gone through Galatians at a pretty good pace. Uh, we've taken some big gulps of fresh air as we've read this letter. But what I want us to do is to slow down as we move into the last two chapters. And uh, maybe to try and illustrate this, let me tell you a story. Imagine a man who has escaped from prison. Um, caveat, it was a crime that he didn't commit, so that's okay for him to escape. Um, at his trial, he pleaded innocent, but evidence was hidden. And now, after, after years of captivity, um, an unexpected opportunity to, to leave that place, to escape that prison opens up. There's a power cut, there's a distracted guard, and suddenly under the cover of darkness he, he manages to climb the fence. He looks back, he sees his cell block through the wire, he can hardly believe what's happened to him, and then he runs. He runs through the night. He runs through a forest. He runs across two rivers. And as morning comes, um, he feels the, the sunlight on his tear-stained face. He can hardly believe what has happened. But as he approaches a village, he stops. He sees a wanted sign with his face on it. And there is no way to, to freedom without going through this village. But he's going to have to be very careful now, isn't he? And the running will have to stop. And his head is going to go down. He's going to have to tread very carefully if he's going to really enjoy his freedom. Now, no illustration is perfect. Um, but I think that that captures something, um, not in a perfect way, but something of what is going on in, in Galatians. Having given us so much to, to celebrate in chapters 1 to 4, I think Paul wants us to be on our guard a little bit as we move into this um, third, this final section of the letter, chapters 5 and 6. Because there are all kinds of different things that can be threats to our freedom as Christians. Things that could trip us up. And we need to tread carefully. And I'm only going to look at verses 1 to 6 tonight. And we'll come back to verse 7 and following next time. But I think 
that sometimes slowing down a little bit like this with a Bible passage is, is no bad thing. Modern life is really full of distractions. And we move through life so quickly. And just taking a bit longer to, to dwell in a text like this, to contemplate together what it might mean for us. Well, it's one way at least to kind of fight the hurry sickness that we often experience. So just verses 1 to 6 tonight. And as we look at these verses, um, there are three things I want us to see. And uh, since I've spoken about slowing down, the first heading I think seems appropriate. It's just one word. It's the word stand. Stand. For freedom, Christ has set us free, says Paul. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, Last week, we saw that some of the fiercest opposition to the gospel comes from the religious. And when I first read verse 1, I couldn't help thinking of Martin Luther and the diet of worms. And now kids, if, you're, if you hear that, you wonder what on earth uh, am I talking about? Um, a diet is another word for a special kind of assembly, a bit like the kind of assemblies you might have at school. And worms, or, or I think it's maybe better pronounced worms, is a place in Germany. And Martin Luther, um, maybe you can remember a kid's talk I did a long time ago. Martin Luther was like a pirate. He was somebody who found hidden treasure, the hidden treasure of the gospel. But lots of people didn't like that. Lots of really important people thought he was wrong. And uh, there came a day when he stood before lots of these people, the diet of worms, the religious, the political uh, rulers of his day, the really important people. They, they, They said to him that he had to give up his belief in the gospel and what Jesus had done and he refused and apparently he said here I stand I can do no other now I don't know about you but I think we often think of stubbornness as a a little bit of an unattractive trait don't we But Paul wants his friends and he wants us to have that kind of attitude, the kind of attitude that that Martin Luther would, would later have, the kind of attitude that Paul has in this verse. God's son has come to this world and he really has set us free. Jesus has set us free from our sins. Jesus has set us free from the punishment those sins deserve. Jesus has set us free from from a slavish relationship with God and we are not to let anyone tell us otherwise. John Stott, uh, writing on this uh, passage, he puts it like this, the Christian freedom Paul describes is freedom of conscience. Freedom from the tyranny of the law, the the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view of, of winning favor with God. It is the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Christ. 
Let's think about those two words for a moment. Access and acceptance. I think they're two wonderful words. This is what we have in Christ. And maybe to think about them a bit more, try thinking about the opposite of those things. What is the opposite of access? Maybe it's denial and refusal, exclusion. Or what about acceptance? We could say rejection, renunciation, spurning. But Paul wants us to know that those, these are not the way God has treated us. Instead, tonight, we are free to run to him, to come to him, to, to enjoy our lives with him, to rest in what Jesus has done for us. Paul wants his friends, and he wants us to stand, to take our stand in that freedom. And someone in our house is learning to stand, and he's doing quite well. Uh, He can move from the sofa to the middle of the living room and he often gives himself a round of applause and then falls over. And when it comes to our um, Christian lives, standing is one thing, but staying standing is another, isn't it? And the temptation for me at this point in the sermon is to, to, to tell you all things that you need to do to, to stand firm. But maybe you can see the, the slight danger of me doing that. And the danger is in doing so, I could just give you exactly the kind of yoke that Paul speaks against in these verses. Instead, I think we should feel the force of this command. We should realize that Paul would not have given this command if the desire to run back to slavery, if that desire wasn't real. The prophet Isaiah puts it like this, in repentance and rest, repentance and rest is your salvation and quietness and trust is your strength. But then he adds this, but you would have none of it. You would have none of it. I think that uh, passage and and verse one, it's a, a kind of reminder that the temptation we have to justify ourselves is hardwired into us. We need to resist that. We need to stand firm against that mindset. And above all, I think we should let this verse point us back and not just to grace as some kind of concept, but to Christ. Because he spoke of a yoke as well, didn't he? Jesus spoke of a yoke. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you loads of programs, loads of things to do for me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. That is what standing in your freedom looks like, looking to Christ. It doesn't mean lots of activity that that kind of makes us forget him. No, it's thinking about him. It is taking our eyes off ourselves. It is breathing a sigh of relief and resting in what Jesus has done. So stand. Secondly, though, understand. Understand. In verses 2 to 5, Paul wants the Galatians to think about the kind of issues that he has been talking about all the way through this letter. And the word Luke that he uses in verse 2 is quite an interesting one. It's the same word that John uses when he says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in a sense, I think Paul wants us to, to do kind of like the mirror image of that, to think really carefully about what running back to slavery means, to consider who it means we will stop looking at. Look, I, Paul, he says, I think he's stressing his apostolic authority here. I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, the person that Paul is challenging here is the person who might be tempted to think that Um, And I won't go into too many of the details here, but that circumcision is just a small procedure. The person who might think, well, I mean, it's not heart surgery, is it? Does it really make much of a difference? And Paul says, absolutely, it is a really big deal. If you go down that route after you've trusted in Christ, then you need to obey the whole law. You are obligated to do so. You are putting yourself under the law as a system. And if you add circumcision to your faith in Christ, then you are walking away from Christ. And I think given the kind of procedure that circumcision is, well, the severing language Paul uses here, it's got to be deliberate, hasn't it? The whole point of circumcision was to show that Jews were distinct from other nations. And as one commentator notes that if a Jew rejected God, he would be cut off from God's people. But the irony is that Paul is saying here that if you do that, if you make that cut, if you think that will make you belong to God after you've become a Christian, then you are actually cutting yourself off from Christ. Now, Paul will get um, even more provocative And I read that verse next week, verse 12. We'll come to that, or next time rather. But I wonder if we believe what he's saying, if we really grasp it. 
See, I think we um, hear the phrase severed from Christ or, or maybe that phrase fallen away from grace. And probably we tend to think of uh, maybe some kind of scandalous sin when we use that language. Um, some kind of immorality that is way out of step with the Christian life. That, that, that's the kind of thing that would cause us to fall away. And Paul is going to talk about things like that later in this chapter. But here, can you see that to be severed from Christ here, to fall away from grace, that's not about immorality, but the opposite, morality. You can drift away from Jesus by getting more religious, looking the part living off the buzz of religious activity. And maybe you and I fixate on doing all the right things for God. But when we try and cross uh, every T, when we try and jot every I, when we add extra burdens to the Christian life and make it all about appropriate behavior, when we get stuck in hamster wheel Christianity... And when we try to keep everything going all in our own steam, when we make our Christian lives, our Christian service, the ground, the, the foundation of our acceptance before God, as we're often tempted to do, then what we often do when we do that is just forget Jesus, forget our need for him. We might not say this aloud, but why is it that we think that taking the time just to contemplate Jesus, to consider him, to bask in him, why might we be tempted to think that that would be, well, maybe just even a little bit of a waste of time? Do we think that he needs something from us? Instead, I think you and I, we're called to wait. Paul's going to, to speak about that in this passage. And next week, we'll, we'll see Paul compare the Christian life to a race. But what have we seen so far? It's a life of standing, considering, waiting, and what are we waiting for? Paul says, through the Spirit, by faith, we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. And we are looking forward to the day when faith will give way to sight, when we will finally see Jesus, when we will see him, the Lamb, our righteousness. And we are looking forward to the day of our glorification. And in Romans 8, Paul says that that day, it's as good as happened. Those he, who he predestined, that's you if you've run to Jesus tonight, those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And that is what is coming for you, for me, if we're Christians. Paul wants us to, to realize this. Paul wants us to enjoy our freedom. Paul does not want us to go back to a life of religious slavery. 
And so he says, stand. He says, understand. And lastly, he says, don't misunderstand. Now, maybe you're thinking, don't misunderstand. Isn't that the same thing as understand? Uh, Don't those two negatives uh, just cancel each other out? Is this just another way to have a three-point sermon with some uh, moderately catchy headings? Uh, Well, it could be. But uh, I wanted to put it that way to make us pause on this uh, final verse, verse 6, to underline an important point. Look at what Paul says. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, maybe you uh, read that or hear that or read it earlier and and think, well, the first part of that verse, it sort of seems to just contradict um, what Paul has just said. And uh, the second half of that verse, it, it kind of maybe seems like he's smuggling in works. And Paul will say something similar in chapter six, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. What is Paul um, speaking about here? What is he going on about? Is this contradictory to what he's just said? Well, notice how verse 6 begins. Um, The commentator, Phil Riken, he uh, helped me here. It says, in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying, if you are united to Christ, then, then whether you are circumcised or not, it adds nothing to your salvation. When you start to think of it as the ground for justification, that's when you're in trouble. If you are a Jew who was circumcised and then became a Christian, or if you're a Gentile who was never circumcised but then came to faith, then never forget what really matters. You are in Christ. He is the vine. You are the branches. He is the head, and you are the body. He is the bridegroom, and you are the bride. Don't think you can be separated from him. But also, don't think you can separate something else. Don't think you can separate faith and works. Freedom as a Christian, it does not mean living as we please. Instead, Paul is saying that as Christians, we are called to live lives marked by love. We are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for them. And yet even here, all the emphasis is always on God's grace. Because as Paul says elsewhere, there are works that are prepared for us in advance for us to do. We, we don't do them in our own strength. We do them in, by the Spirit and as those united to Christ. Well, I mentioned um, Martin Luther, uh, the pirate, earlier on. 
But I wonder, can you see in uh, these verses near the end, can you see three of the other topics that um, we've mentioned in kids' talks recently? Um, I'll give you a clue. They're not in quite the same order as we looked at them. Uh, Can you see them? Hope, faith, and love. Hope mentioned in verse 5. Faith and love mentioned in verse 6. In fact, faith is mentioned twice. This is what a life of freedom looks like. This is what you and I are called to as God's children. It is for freedom, Paul says, that Christ has set us free. But that freedom does not mean that you and I are just to, to live for ourselves. It doesn't mean that I am free to be me. And everyone else just has to kind of put up with that. It doesn't mean, as we'll see, that we can do just whatever we like. No, that is the spirit of the age rather than the way of God's spirit. Instead tonight, you and I, we are called to lives marked by faith, hope, and love. And we are free to serve others rather than live as captives to self. We are free from the prison of only ever thinking of our own needs, our own desires. We are free to care for others. We are free to pray for others. And we are free to remind one another of the wonderful freedom we have in Christ. Well, if I can um, use my imagination again, are you wondering what happened to our prisoner? I invented him, so uh, let me let you into a little secret. He got through the village. Um, A friend saw him, uh, took him in, The missing evidence has been found. The police are going to look into it. And as he drifts off to sleep, as he starts to do that, he dreams of his future. And he starts to think of the kind of life he's going to live. He starts to think of of the love, the care for others he wants to show. He will never have to go back. He has tasted freedom. And so have we. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you that he is the one who has set us free, free from striving to please you, to earn your love. And so we pray that you would help us to stand in that freedom. He is one for us. Thank you that that freedom does not mean that we are simply to live for ourselves. And so we pray that you'd help us to to serve one another in love. We pray you'd help us to 
lay down our lives for one another as he laid down his life for us. And we pray all this, uh, that Jesus, that his name would be honored and praised, for we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to um, close our service now by singing again. And we're going to sing um, a song all about the cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs>